to The Worried Writer, helping you to overcome fear, self-doubt and procrastination to get the work done. I'm your host, Sarah Painter, and I'm a novelist and self-confessed worried writer. For show notes, resources and much more, please head to worriedwriter.com. And now, on with the show. Welcome to episode 29 of The Worried Writer. I'm recording this a little early on Saturday the 24th of June as I'm clearing the decks before taking a family holiday. My guest today is best-selling author of historical crime fiction, Martin Lee. Martin writes under the name M.J. Lee and his books include the Jane Sinclair Genealogical Mysteries and the Inspector Danilov series, which is set in 1920s Shanghai. Before writing novels, Martin worked as a creative director in advertising, and it was really interesting to hear about how that experience has helped him in his novel writing career. In the interview, we discuss plotting versus pantsing, Martin's writing process, and he gives some wonderful advice on doing historical research. I must apologise for the sound quality in the interview. We had some technical difficulties. I've done my best in post-production, and I really hope you can still enjoy it, as Martin and I had an interesting chat. In writing news, I finished the big rewrites on Beneath the Water for Lake Union, and I'm going into the studio this week to begin recording the audiobook of Stop Worrying, Start Writing. Also, as it's June and the previous six months seem to have flown past in a bit of a blur, I thought it would be a good idea to revisit the goals I set out for 2017, back in January. I did a big blog post with updates on the progress I've made and my plans for the rest of the year. As you know, I'm obsessed by goal setting and have found it hugely helpful, and this exercise was no different. It was really good to set out exactly what I've managed to get done and to check in with how I'm feeling about my aims and goals for the next six months. Overall, I'm very pleased, but my clear takeaway is that it's definitely time to refocus on writing new first draft material. I had forgotten that I had set the goal of three new books this year, so I'm glad I reminded myself while I still have time, which is why I urge you to do the same. Sometimes I think we can avoid looking at our plans and goals after we've made them, as we are fearful But even if it is bad news, in that you've completely fallen off the wagon and are way behind in your progress, it is truly better to face that and know, so that you can refocus, readjust or recalibrate. It's far better than to simply ignore the situation. If you do that, you're definitely not going to make any progress. I'll put a link to the post in the show notes, and I'd love to hear about your plans for 2017. How are they going? Are you making any adjustments to ones you have set, or setting some for the first time, or recommitting to the ones that you made in January? In other news, I appeared on another podcast, Paul Teague's Self-Publishing Journeys. I was super nervous before the interview. I far prefer asking the questions to answering them. And when I do this podcast, I know that I'm in control of the editing, and I can cut it out if I say something truly stupid. But Paul was really nice and made it very enjoyable. If you want to hear more about my journey to publication, my experiences of becoming a hybrid author, and my writing process, I've put a link in the show notes. While we're on the subject of other podcasts, I'd also like to recommend Mark Dawson and James Blatch's The Self-Publishing Formula. They have a great mix of author interviews and business and marketing advice. 
Okay, on to this month's listener question. This question is from Janine. Janine wrote, I'm currently editing my first draft and I'm struggling to come to terms with the taste gap. I've been reading Jojo Moyes' latest novel, which is just fantastic, and returning to the editing afterwards is really rather difficult. I struggle to imagine my writing will ever be as good, and I so desperately want it to be. Do you have any advice? Well, the taste gap that Janine refers to here from Ira, it's an Ira Glass quote. Um, I will put a link in the show notes to the full quote, but it's basically about how we come to do creative work because we have good taste and we like stuff. And then we start doing creative work. And of course, there is this gap between what we're creating and what we know is good. And at the end of the quote, uh, Ira Glass says, the most important possible thing you can do is a lot of work. Do a huge volume of work. Put yourself on a deadline so that every week or every month you know you're going to finish one story because it's only by actually going through a volume of work that you are actually going to catch up and close that gap. Well, thank you so much for the question, Janine. I really wanted to read it out because I know with utter certainty that this is something we all go through. It's also something that can rear up again and again throughout the writing process, no matter how long you've been creating. There is nothing like starting a first draft after finishing the final polishing edits, for example. Your brain automatically compares the raw draft material with the worked-on, polished prose you've just finished. And your fear is likely to tell you that you've lost whatever talent you had and you ought to give up immediately. Hopefully, it helps just to know that this is completely normal and that it's something that every single person engaged in creative work experiences. It also probably won't surprise you to learn that I completely agree with Ira Glass's advice. The only way to close the gap between what you want to create and what you are producing is to do the work. Lots and lots of work. However, I would add that the key to getting that work done is to focus on it as practice. I talk about this in Stop Worrying, Start Writing as I found it truly revolutionary in my own writing life. If you can shift the focus from the finished product, the book you plan to complete, to the daily practice of getting the words or the edits done, that will really help. You also have to remember that you are the worst judge of your own work, and that it's not your job to do so. To take your example, I am willing to bet that even Jojo Moyes probably finished that book and wasn't sure if it was any good. Your only job is to finish. If you do the work to the best of your current ability, then you get the gold star. You have fulfilled the contract with your creativity. Once you've finished, you have to let it go so that it can be appreciated and, yes, judged by other people. And then you can get stuck into your next bit of practice. By focusing on the process, you will take some of the pressure off the final product and hopefully keep front and centre in your mind that this is what you do. This is what writing is. It's not all about one book or one story. It's a long process of creating and finishing and letting go, through which you will learn all the time. If you can take the pressure off any one particular story or book or script and remember that this is a long game that you are engaged in, it will hopefully help you to be less searingly critical of the particular work that you are finishing at this moment. 
rather than thinking of it as the be-all and end-all that must be perfect, that must say everything, that must do everything, that must be everything, you can hopefully then just remember that it is just one bead in a long chain. I really hope that helps, Janine, and thanks so much for your question. If you have a question on writing, publishing, productivity, or self-doubt, do get in touch, sarah at worriedwriter.com, or find me on Twitter, at Sarah R. Painter. As always, I am hugely grateful to you for listening and to everyone who has sent kind messages or tweets and spread the word on social media. If you know someone who might enjoy the podcast, please do share it. And if you have a moment to spare to leave me a rating on iTunes, that would be great. I also want to give a quick shout out to a listener of the show, Vanessa Robertson. Vanessa got in touch to let me know that she has just signed with her dream literary agent. Congratulations, Vanessa! She was also kind enough to say that the podcast had helped her during the writing and submission process, which absolutely made my day. It makes me so happy to play a small part in other writers' successes, and I am honoured to belong to this supportive and sharing community. Also, some other lovely folk on Twitter. There's Bibliomaniac UK. Bry Mariano, and A.L. Michael. Also, Peniel Hughes, and I do apologise if I'm pronouncing your name wrong, said, Apparently it isn't just me floundering, so reassuring. I think I'll start from episode one every time I start a new story now. It's like having an equally worried travelling companion. Thanks, Peniel. And now, on to the interview section of the show. writes under the name M.J. Lee as a best-selling author of historical crime fiction. His books include The Jane Sinclair Genealogical Mysteries, Samuel Pepys and the Stolen Diary, and the Inspector Daniloff series, which is set in 1920s Shanghai. Before turning to novel writing, Martin spent 25 years working for advertising companies in London, Hong Kong, Taipei, Singapore, Bangkok and Shanghai. As a copywriter and creative director, he has won awards from Cannes, One Show, DNAD, New York and the United Nations. Welcome to the show, Martin, and thank you so much for joining me. Great to be here. Fantastic. Well, if we could just dive dive in straight away with um, The Murder Game is your latest release, and it's the third book in your Inspector Daniloff series. I would love to hear what drew you to writing about crime in 1920s Shanghai. Actually, well, I was drawn to the period in the era when I was living in Shanghai. I lived there from 2011 to 2014, uh, working as um, a creative director in a big American agency in China. And I remember very clearly when the idea of writing a novel came to me. Um, I think I had a pretty bad day, as you sometimes do working in advertising, or quite often do working in advertising. <laughs> and um, I remember walking behind the bunt, not on the bunt itself, but uh, the roads behind the bunt in Shanghai. And I got to, it was around dusk, I think in October, beautiful time of year in Shanghai. And I got to a, um, a crossroads uh, just behind the bunt. It's where the uh, Jiangxi Middle Road meets Fuzhou Road. Um, and it's quite an old area. And in that particular crossroads, if you look up, there's four Art Deco buildings in each corner. And so I remember looking up and, you know, Shanghai's got 22 million people. And for some obscure reason, there was nobody around. There was nobody on the streets. 
and there wasn't even any cars or motorbikes or even bikes. And, you know, suddenly imagining here I was, I could have been back in 1920 Shanghai, you know, with the, a, a, a long Packard driving past going up to this Art Deco hotel and, you know, women dressed as flappers coming out and men in tops and tops and tails. And suddenly that particular moment hit me. And I think it was then that I decided what a great location and setting for a crime novel. But in the, you know, the city of joy, gin and jazz, as they term Shanghai in the twenties, you know, it was an amazing time there. You know, it's like a wonderful melting pot of, um, of adventurers who were living in the city at the time. Oh, fantastic. And you said that the idea for a novel came to you. Had you always thought about writing or? Um, I, well, as a, as a copywriter and creative director, I spent my whole life writing, actually. So. But more commercial, um, you know, ads and TV image rather than anything else. I, I want, I took a period, uh, a year off in 1997 to try to write a novel. And I did. I wrote, I think, about one and a half novels uh, in that time. Um, and, and then, uh, gave up and went back to work. And I think I, it was a mistake. I, uh, gave up because in the second novel, which was quite Good. I think it's quite good. And I've since rewritten it completely and published it. Um, I got to that point about 45,000 words in when I'd hit the wall. You know, uh, quite often in a novel, you hit a wall and you think, I can't go on. This is terrible. <laughs> you know, the, the, the dialogue's clunky. The, 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 the story isn't going anywhere. Nobody's going to want to read this. It's the most boring thing that, you know, that anybody's ever put on paper. Classic writer worries. And as a worried writer, you know it will. <laughs> I am familiar with the wall. <laughs> um, and I stopped the book and went and offered a job and went back to work. And, you know, I think at that time, if I'd had a mentor, somebody I could have spoken to and said, you know, told them what I was going through, and they would think told me, as I would now to anybody writing a book, it's just the process. Ignore it, carry on, keep plowing on, you'll find the story again, you'll discover the story again yourself. And even if, you know, you get to 80,000 words and you're still uncertain, all you have to do is go back to the beginning and start again. And what you do is you read it through until you feel where you've gone wrong and then you rewrite it because it doesn't matter until it's published. Until then, you can rewrite and rewrite and rewrite until you're happy. But I think that I didn't have a mentor, so I went back to work. <laughs> it sat, the novel sat there for 20 years and I just published it this year. And I've written it three times since, but I published it this year, about which was under my own name, it's called The Fall. Um, so I think, you, you know, um, the first novel I ever wrote, I've never published and I will never publish. It's just, it's just. Practice. <laughs> yeah. But I think you do. I think, you, you know, it's, writing's like, it's an exercise. The more you do it, the better you get. Mm. Uh, you know, and I always find the hardest thing for me when I write is, um, is doing the stupid things. Is, you know, moving character A across the room to and see something out the window. You know, and you, that's the bit when I'm editing, I spend a long time trying to make those movements of people, you know, the simple movements, reactions to people speaking or going to a window to look out as smooth as possible. 
And you mentioned you mentioned rewriting there. Do you do you prefer drafting or editing, outlining or brainstorming? Like, what's your favourite part of the process? I um, I think for me, writing the first draft is that I enjoy most. Simply, it's the for me the period of discovery. I, I'm a, a, a I'm a pants or a semi pantser I would call myself. I'm not a, I'm not a great author. What I tend to do is um, find images. For me, it's always a, a picture or an image or a, a scene, um, and these are waypoints for the story. So usually, before I start, I know I've got a beginning, I've got an end, and I may have a couple of waypoints in, in the middle. Um, images as waypoints, and what I generally do. Thing I love is that discovery as you weave your way through these waypoints to get to the end and, and discover about yourself, you discover about the characters you devised, you discover about you know, the, the plot itself. Doing that means, unfortunately, that I have to do quite a lot of editing. But I don't mind because I think, who was it that said, I think it was Lee Child, who books I'm not a great fan of, but I think he was a, a, a pantser as well. And he said that he, he does it because he, um, if, if he doesn't know the end, his character doesn't know the end either. So therefore he discovers along with his character, Jack Reacher, uh, and that gives his books the excitement, the unpredictability that he's looking for. Um, another, um, you know, great pencil would be uh, Stephen King, who doesn't plot, who basically writes and discovers his character and is doing it. And you can really see the difference between a, a pantser in the, the books they write and a plotter. For example, a very definite plotter who spends, I think, nine months plotting um, is uh, Joe Nesbo. And you can see how structured his books are. And it looks like the, 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 the characters are pawns to be moved around within a plot. Um, it's still very well written, but, um, you know, that... that um, I think you can really see the difference. I actually prefer that sense of discovery. Hmm. I think it's I think it's very um, reassuring to just always think that there are these different different approaches, and ultimately, it doesn't really matter as long as you get the book written. Because I've spent a long time, many years, um, wishing that I was a plotter, wishing that I was able to outline, and bemoaning the fact that I, I that I can't. Um, but I'm starting to just sort of accept it a wee bit more now and just think that's how I write. I write these first drafts and then I have to rework them a lot, as you said. And that's just how it is. <laughs> and I think, you know, wherever there's 100,000 writers in the world, there's probably 100,000 different ways of working. It's finding the, the, the way of working that you are very comfortable with. I, you know, outline maybe three or four images and about a page of little notes to myself. And then I you know, and um, and that it's the way that works for me, and hopefully it's the way that makes the books interesting to read. I hope, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I love, I do absolutely love talking about the nitty gritty of process as well. So, um, would you mind telling me about your sort of routine? Um, do you have? Do you write every day? Do you aim for a particular word count or anything like that? I write every day, generally. But the, generally I write every day simply because it's the only way I can keep, can keep the momentum going. I will look for reasons, as all writers do, to do something else. So I force myself to do it. I'm a morning person, so I'm usually up between 5 and 6 every morning. I try and start work at 6.30. 
and then I write until I've got about two and a half thousand words, um, and then I stop, which usually for me is about eleven o'clock, so we're on there, and then I uh, and I'll, I've taken breaks in between, so I'm quite structured like that, and it doesn't matter. I'm in Manchester at the moment, the rest of the time I live in Taiwan. And it doesn't matter. I work exactly the same. Taiwan, I'm a bit later because I've got to get, take my daughter to school. But I take my daughter to school, then I come back and write and still follow the same process. Is the afternoon free to be me, mm. to be, to meet people, to have coffee, to go out, to market the books, which is necessary, um, and to do the sort of things that, um, uh, I like doing as well. You know, I think the worst thing you can do as a writer is sit at a desk and, and hope, hope that it comes, force it out. Um, I think you need to be disciplined about your time. It's a job. It's work. Uh, and then let yourself enjoy life. You know, there's, there's a great, I mean, again, uh, it was a creative director. And I spent my whole life um, being creative on tap, if you like. So, the, you know, when you're working or being paid to be creative, and you spend a lot of time, as I do as a writer, staring out the window and just thinking. But at that time, I'm actually working. When I'm staring out the window, I'm thinking. And has have um have you brought any uh, tips or productivity things or creativity things from your work as a creative director to now being a full time author? Yeah, there's there's a great book, the man academic with the, the world's worst name, Chicksent Highly. Okay, it's, it's, a, it's a book on creativity. He's a professor of in Stanford. And he, they, they had a couple of things. The first thing was that if you think you, you're creative, you are creative. A lot of people tell themselves, oh, I can't do that, I can't write, I can't draw, I'm not creative, I'm not a creative person. He interviewed, I think, 18,000 students, and he found quite simply those that thought they were creative were creative. They were quite happy jobs. Those who didn't weren't. It's the old Dante thing about each person confirming a prison, each person, sorry, each person thinking of a prison, each person confirms a prison. So if you think you can't do something, you definitely can't do it. Think you can, you might not be great, but you'll get it done. You can. The second thing that, that, that he did, I mean, it was in his second book, he was talking about the zone, uh, which I think is a really important thing for writers particularly. Uh, and, and me as a historical crime is very important to me. It's a time when you are so focused on what, you, what you're doing, the world outside you vanishes. Uh, we, I mean, I think most people have uh, experienced that when they've been watching a game of football or, or, or doing something, doing a jigsaw or something, whatever, it doesn't really matter. But you create, you get into the zone, me, it's just talking away, I can hear the characters, I can see the situation, I can almost smell, you know, what the characters are, uh, are smelling, what they're feeling, what they're going through. And I'm just transposing those images in my head onto paper. I'm in that zone. Csikszentmihalyi says the point of being creative is to get into that zone. So um, I now can usually do it straight away, within 30 seconds, I'm in that little world. Everything else vanishes around me. I don't hear music, I don't hear anything else, I just... And then, you know, 45 minutes to an hour later, I'll look up 
I think about three minutes have gone and an hour's gone. Uh, and then I usually have a break or go and make myself coffee or do something. And then 15 minutes later, you go back to work and immediately get into the zone again. That's amazing. Now, did you, is that from training yourself to get into the, the sort of flow state or the zone? I think a lot of it's because I had to. It was a, I had to physically do it every day simply, you know, because that was, that's what I was paid to do. But uh, I, I'm trying to think how I do it. I actually, it's almost the, the process of picking up the laptop. I actually work, by the way, not at a desk, I work sitting in an armchair <laughs> with the laptop, with a Mac on my lap. Probably terrible for my posture, terrible for me. But as soon as I'm sat in my chair with the laptop on my uh, lap, Tapping away on my Mac, I'm immediately into the zone. You know, so that you know, and, and the flow, the words are flowing out. And I think it's partly just tapping into that and actually having the 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 confidence to know it will come. I touch wood, um, throw salt over my shoulder all day, and I think it's just to check. Um, I don't have problems with um, blockages or uh, it's called, you know uh, word, word blindness or word word blockages. I actually don't even believe in it. Mm. Even if you feel it, write anyway. Use um, um, unconscious writing. If you ever get the block, a tip would be just write whatever comes into your head. Not about the story, not about the um, um, the novel you're doing. Just write what happened in your life. And immediately you start writing, you get into that flow of writing. You can then transfer that flow energy into a... Um, into the novel but I don't I don't you know Mm. word blocks don't don't exist I think that's really good advice and so you don't you don't suffer from creative block Um, is there a particular part of the writing process or the process of being an author so marketing or any other aspect that that you do tend to procrastinate with or you're likely to have some sort of maybe not block yeah, but perhaps uh, fear of it surprises me you know, again i spent 25 of my year, 25 years of my life marketing products and i keep you know the, the rational side of my brain tells me treat yourself as another product that's all you are marketing uh, your books you're just another product but the emotional side it, kicks in and that's fear of rejection, fear of success as well as rejection. I think fear of success is more damaging. Um, it's fear of putting oneself out there to be criticised and that's, you know, um, to, to take, um, to have critiques made of your work. But people say, oh, that's terrible. That's awful. So that's, for me, the strange part, which I didn't think I would have a problem with. And... What, how do you overcome that procrastination or that, that fear of success or that fear of failure so that you can, um, you know, do the bit of marketing that maybe you have in mind? It's the same tip I, I um, I'd say two tips actually, I used in advertising that I didn't want to do in this book, is um, first set yourself a deadline. That deadline has to be set in stone. You can't, you know, deadlines don't get shifted. You set it, so so I know I have a deadline in my present book uh, of June the 1st. So I will hit that deadline, I will finish it, and I will send it off to my editor, and, you know, then. It means working a lot, but I will get it done. The second thing is uh, just set yourself a time when you are 
um, unless there's one other thing. Set yourself a time when you're going to start doing the work. You know, the classic thing is you go onto Facebook or you go onto Twitter or you watch TV or you read a book. But I generally say, look, at two o'clock, I'm going to do this for an hour. Uh, after an hour, I will reward myself. Uh, whatever I decide, but reward chocolate or wine, usually one of the two. Uh, so you have basically two things. <laughs> set yourself a time to start doing it. Set yourself a reward when you've done it. You know, so there's something to look forward to for doing something you hate. I don't hate marketing, it's just I, but I do procrastinate. So there's probably other issues about fear and, mm-hmm. um, and criticism that I'm, I'm, I'm not keen on. But the, I think the only way to do it is to face up to it, you know. Very male answer. Face up to your fears. You know, it's not, a, uh, not something I recommend. That's my own way of handling it. No, no. And I think, I think it's good advice in the sense that Ultimately, we do just have to do it. Um, and I'd like to move on to your creative work, if that would be okay. Um, I was reading about your Jane Sinclair mysteries, and they're called the Jane Sinclair Genealogical Mysteries. And I hadn't actually heard of that subgenre before. I was just wondering if you could tell me a wee bit about it. For me, the three things I, 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 I love, firstly, the ge- genealogy. I've got to my own family we discovered some amazing family secrets, um, which nobody ever told me about. Um, the second thing it includes history, so the um, you know, my degrees in history, so I love that. And the third is crime, or a mystery that needs to be discovered. So those three elements come together in in a genealogical a genealogy uh, mystery, and and I think what they really trying to do, or books of this genre, are uh, Answering the question of who are we? You know, the, the novel generally has a, a structure of um, a person who's looking to find a, uh, a family secret or about their past. The person who's asking himself, who am I? Where do I come from? For example, in the first book uh, in the series, The Irish Inheritance, it's um, uh, an American man who was adopted when he was four years old, asking... Um, you know, where do I come from? And by using some, you know, uh, genealogy uh, researches, historical researches, and crime research, you can actually um, discover this, the truth of his life and discover the truth of the story. So, and I think that whole sense of who are we in today's world, you know, where there's fake news everywhere, there is, um, you know, settings on Facebook and all the rest of it. Asking that question about yourself is, is, is very important. Knowing who you are, and see these. That's why I think these books are a growing um, genre, um, and people like reading because it's all about who are we. I think genealogy is something like the biggest search topic on on um, Google. Ask, you know, after maps and and porn, I think. <laughs> People become more alienated from the, the, the nuclear family and families. They want to find out about who they are, their own family history. You know, I found out my own family history. My my grandmother, who I knew as a, she lived to be 103, and was this staid, conservative, Catholic woman, Irish woman, who um, I found out later was illegitimate. And in the island of 1880s, that's just been a... Well, the stigma, so all the life, my grandmother 
uh, you know, you realise about her that she reached respectability, starting with Stevenage. And on the other side of my family, my father's side, I found out my grandfather was a member of the IRA. And actually, been fighting uh, against the British during the Irish War of Independence in 19, from 1917 to 1922, and probably met my grandmother um, when he was on the run from the British Army, because she lived in a different place. So again, these fascinating things you can find about yourself. Have you actually researched your own family history or not? Um, I haven't. My mum's been doing quite a bit recently, and it's really. It's, I find it fascinating, um, and I, I love his. I love historical stuff, and um, I really enjoyed writing some historical things in my last two novels. It's definitely something I'm going to do more of. Um, I wanted to ask you about. I suppose you, you know you've used genealogical research for your own family, so you already knew how to do it, as it were, when you were using it in your novels. Um, do you have any, and also you mentioned that you have a degree in history, so that's, you're well up. Um, do you have any top tips for doing historical research? Um, yeah, I, I think the thing to be is methodical. If you're, doing, if you're writing a, a book that's set in the past, the three, how I research um, is I always have three layers of research. The first layer I do is to read just general books about the period. So in other words, I, you know, in that way I get to know the the social, political happenings of that period, and again, the general understanding. The second thing I then do is read memoirs, and memoirs are great in that they give you a very personal view of a particular topic or uh, or time period. Uh, they're biased, they're subjective, they're one person's point of view, but they do start introducing that personal, subjective element, which I think all authors have to bring to historical work. And the third thing I love is actually finding original documents. For example, again, on the Irish inheritance, the book's about the um, the Easter Rising, or part of it's about the Easter Rising, um, and I found some wonderful um, um, documents done in the Irish uh, archives of people talking, just ordinary Dubliners who talked about their experience of the Easter Rising, both as combatants and just as civilians watching what was going on. And this was done um, by amazingly by the Irish government in the 1950s when these people were still alive. And so it's a, it's a real a wonderful document about what actually happened from a single person's point of view. On the Son legacy, which um, I, I, uh, the second book in the series, um, I, part of the book deals with suffragettes. It was fascinating researching suffragettes. And I found out a lovely fact that the, um, the first surveillance photographs taken by British police were of suffragettes in Holloway Prison. Uh, you know, secret photographs taken them wandering around the, the exercise yard simply because they wanted to understand who these women were. Um, and I think that it shows you how much that Mrs. Pankhurst and the hunger strikers frightened the, the liberal government of that, of that time, of that period. So, you know, the, those are three elements I use it. I always know the, the other thing about research is knowing where to stop. You know, you, I mean, I mean, I could research them for four or five years, and obviously, I should, I did degree in history, and I actually did a postgraduate history, um, which I never finished. And my postgraduate history was in, in basic research. But the um, the wonderful thing about research is you can go on and on, you can go more and more and more. I use one tip that I do when I know I've done enough research, is when I start reading an anecdote again, 
But I've read the anecdote, and then I start seeing the anecdote again, and maybe a third time. I then I've read enough. Mm. I've got to just start learning. Ah, uh-huh. so you do your research uh, before you start the first draft? No, I always I always do my research um, because I discover the story through the research. So the um, again, when you get into the the third tier, which is basic documents, there you find the wonderful nuggets that help your writing come alive. So I generally do it before I read the story, then throw the research away and write the story. My my best tip for research as you're writing the story is don't go on the internet to find an answer. All you do is you put, I all I do is I get to a point when I discover, for example, what sort of cigarette did they smoke? Or what was a popular perfume of that period? So, you know, what I do is all I do is I put four X's in the sentence and then I'll come back later after I finish the first draft and I just do find in word so that I've got my, the X's pop up and as each X pops up, I then go on to research particular details. I then can also at the time check my own research, my, my writing versus the research I've done. But it's a, the worst thing you can do and is actually, oh, what sort of cigarettes did it? I'll just stop writing. I'll stop being in the zone, stop flowing, and I'll go and spend three hours or four hours, you know, on Google or on Facebook, find it out, because you lose the flow, you lose the zone. I'll come back from later. Carry on, you know, carry on telling your story. That's the key thing to do. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a really good tip. <laughs> And so while we're, while we're on an, a roll as regards advice, um, what advice would you give to anybody listening who's at the start of their sort of writing journey? Um, they may be struggling to finish their book, their first book, or perhaps they're dealing with rejection, dejection as they submit to agents and publishers. What, what sort of advice would you give um, a beginning author? Keep going. It's, you know, it's the, I think if I talk about my, my own journey, again, I wrote in 1997, hit the wall and gave up, which I would say to anybody, don't. Don't give up, keep going. You will eventually find uh, an editor or a publisher or even self-publish, you do it yourself, but you will find somebody who wants to publish you. It, do your research, work out what, write, what uh, niche or genre you're writing in, find out which publishers print that genre, and if you can't find them self-published, make sure you get an editor, though, to make sure your work is of the right standard. But for me, for example, for when my work was published by Karina, I was extremely lucky. I'd sent the, the, the Daniloff books off out to about 20 agents and publishers and been rejected and then I sent it off to Karina which is now HQ uh, and it was read by Cleo, Cleo Cornish who was the editor there and Cleo I think about two months previously had just been given the job of establishing a crime portfolio uh, historical crime portfolio for um, for HQ uh, which again was just luck you know, I didn't know that. I just sent it to her at the right time. And again, I also write a Peeps novel for Endeavour Press. And the editor, the publisher there, uh, who owns the company, is a woman called Amy Durant, who um, 
wrote back, as I, I always said, to, I think to her and one other company. She wrote back immediately saying, love it. Uh, can you, uh, yeah, uh, we'd love to, you know, to publish it. Um, and I found out later that she'd been looking for a Pete's book for about 10 years, actually doing a, a PhD in one of the characters in the book, a woman called Afra Bean, who was the, the world's first female um, um, uh, dramatist, uh, playwright. Um, yeah, so it's luck. A lot of it is luck, being in the right place at the right time, sending your manuscript to the right person who likes it. Don't give up. Find the person. They're out there. Somewhere they're out there. But just make your book as good as it can possibly be before you send it off. If that means making sure you employ a um, proofreader to check for uh, typos or it may mean using an outside editor, employing a freelance editor to help you make the book as good as it can be. Do it, and then you'll find the person who's supposed to publish it. Mm, that's good advice. And so just to finish up, what are you working on at the moment, or what's next for you? I know what my next two years are of my life. <laughs> so as I, I'm just finishing the next... Um, Jason Clear, I'll finish it or editing at the moment. It will be finished by June 1st. It will go off to my editor. She will comment on it and then I'll come back and revise it. I think that will be published sometime in September. And I'm in the middle. I write books concurrently and I don't, you know, um, I don't do one and then do another and another. I tend to do it at the same time. And so I'm in the middle of the new Samuel Pete book. Uh, which um, where he goes off, as he, which he did to to um, Versailles to the court of uh, Louis the Fourteenth, or certainly to Paris, um, uh, in sixteen sixty nine, and then uh, I will. I'm just starting to think about um, the next Danilov book, which I think will be due out next March. I think when it's done. So those are my my life for the next year. Um, and then I've got like three other books I've got in head I want to write. I just discovered a wonderful story about an Irish American, um, gangster in the 1860s. I'd love to write that over time. But, you know, loads of, I mean, the, the problem is I've got too many ideas and not enough time. <laughs> Well, it sounds like you're doing very well, and I'm, I'm going to have to um, not let you go just yet, because I have to ask, how on earth do you manage to work on more than one book at the same time? Because uh, they're very different books. So the the Peeps is much more light-hearted, quite witty, set in the, the Restoration period, uh, much more in the style of Flashman books, you know, that sort of very light-hearted Danilov is much darker, much more of the Shanghai of the 30s, darker, mistier. And then the Jane Sinclair are lighter um, and much more about families and family stories. So because each one's a slightly different style, again, it's all about just getting into the zone of that particular style as I'm writing. Um, and it sort of it makes it relaxing for me. They're going to, back into whichever period I've I'm, I'm in, and the language changes, the style of writing changes, the the way you structure, the, even the paragraphs change. You know, so it's uh, I find it relaxing just writing in different styles. Just again, a little another 
tip, and it actually came when I was at school. I used to have a teacher that um, one of the things he used to do to us was set a book to read each month. But, for example, Austin or Dostoevsky or whatever we had to read each month. But then, or Hemingway, and then we would have to write the, a paragraph in the style of that book, an opening paragraph in the style of that book, for but something mundane for like what I did on my holiday, but it would have to be in the style of Hemingway or the style of Jane Austen. So what you get to very clever of him. What it meant you did when you read the book is you were outside of it thinking, how was he achieving that particular effect on me as a reader? What was the language he was using? What were the structure of the sentences? You know, Jane Austen's sentences are very different from Hemingway's. You know, and you become very conscious of style. And so I'm now quite conscious of style when I write, and it's quite clear for me. I'm, these are three different people, or three different writers who's me writing. <laughs> Gosh, well, that's very impressive. Um, I just, I think I would get mixed up. <laughs> I may do, of course. I, you know, I might be, you know, uh, confusing myself, but I think they're quite different. But in my head, nothing else. I'm sure you don't get mixed up. And what I like the idea of is using slightly different. Um, it being a way of maybe getting a wee bit more out of my creative energy for the day because I can write a certain amount of fiction and then that energy just seems to have gone. So just to finish up, where is the best place for people to go and find out more about you and your books? I have a, a website which is um, com, and then I have a Facebook page which has the original title of Facebook website. Uh, writermjlee.com and then I even have a Twitter account which is also writermjlee.com so if I'm nothing consistent in my, uh, my handles you know, <laughs> so that's where you can find out about me but I hope everybody enjoys it and actually uh, it's been helpful if, you, if you're a starting writer just keep going you'll get there that's brilliant thanks so much Martin thank you very much Sarah Thanks for listening today. For show notes and links, head to worriedwriter.com. If you'd like to connect, find me on Twitter at Sarah R. Painter or use the hashtag worriedwriter. See you next time.